Welcome to another episode of Decided Heart Conversations with Sonia, myself, Hillary, and we are being joined by an incredibly special guest today, Dr. Jillian Lampert. And we were really, Sonia and I, as you know, we have these conversations. We're friends in real life, not just on air. And we were having this conversation. We both have this passion for youth in particular, but we kind of love whoever we come across and have a conversation. You're stuck with us now too, Jillian. Um, So when we were talking, one thing we've noticed during this pandemic, during this time of COVID, we've had a lot of young people in particular that are struggling with feeling out of control. And that feeling out of control has turned into trying to cope in different ways. And I've had more of my friends, my mom friends, talking to me about eating disorders with their kids now than any other time uh, that I've ever, and, and I don't know if it's because it's, is it really COVID? Is it just because we need to talk right now because we're so isolated? I don't know. And Sonia, I know you said you've been experiencing some of the same things with clients. So doing some research, we came across the EMILY program, which is something that we are just absolutely delighted to bring you information about today. And Dr. Lambert is the chief strategy officer for that. She has, I'm going to let you read her bio because she has all of the letters of the entire alphabet behind her name. She has so many amazing things that she does, but the two things that stick out in my mind most of all are number one, she really works with a program that focuses on integrity, respect, dignity for their clientele. And you know what really touches my heart most of all is I really truly believe that the main reason she's in this is to model and show love for our bodies and to help her daughter have a true grounded sense of self moving forward. And we both have daughters as well. So I can't thank you so much for joining us today. And I cannot wait to hear the tips you bring us and more about the EMILY program. I feel like you're going to be an incredibly valuable research resource for us. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. It's a great conversation and a super important one. And can you tell us a little bit about um, just begin with what the Emily program is um, and the, the vision statement's amazing. So we'd just love to learn more about that. Sure. So the Emily program is a, it's a full service eating disorder program. So we, we specialize in eating disorders. We're not a broad mental health program that just has sort of an eating disorder section. We are eating disorders all day long, all the time for anybody who has an eating disorder. And we treat people of all ages, all genders, all everything, uh, which is a bit unusual. There's a a number of eating disorder programs across the country, not enough because we still are only serving about 30% of people who have an eating disorder actually get care, which is a huge problem. So there's not enough treatment, uh, but it's also a little bit unusual to have treatment available all the way through the treatment journey. And we all know recovery from an eating disorder is sort of up and down. It's not necessarily linear. People can do well and then have a, have a relapse and do well again. They might need multiple levels of care, multiple kinds of care. Uh, and we really believe at the Emily program that, that we want to be there for people their whole journey. Our founder, who is a, a psychologist, Dr. Dirk Miller, has a sister named Emily. You can see where the name came from. And Emily had an eating disorder. Dirk had an eating disorder. And he decided to become a psychologist to build a program for people with eating disorders 
fueled in, at least in part by the understanding of having the illness touch him personally and himself and his family and, and really, frankly, across a, a, an enormous swath of our employees. Uh, I had an eating disorder. A lot of our, our leadership team has. And so it, it's really, um, I think, unique in a way uh, that, that we really want to be there through the whole journey. And particularly because we, uh, many of us ex experienced eating disorders at a time when there wasn't treatment available. And since that is still the reality for so many people, we really want to be able to bring treatment to as many people as possible. So we're currently, uh, we have 15 EMILY programs across the country. We're in a bunch of different states in Washington and Ohio and Minnesota and Pennsylvania. Uh, and our goal really is to partner with people and help them to get well in a way that works for them. Because it turns out recovery is different for each person. And so we really want to be aware of that. As you're, as you're talking, one of the things that is really crossing my mind as well is I think many of us, when we think eating disorders, we are, oh, somebody who's going to be really, really skinny. It's going to be some, it's going to be so obvious. We're going to know right away. They're the person who's not eating, but there's just so much more to that. Would you mind kind of grounding us in maybe two things? First of all, and this is really a loaded question, what does an eating disorder look like? Because I know it looks like a lot of different things, but what does an eating disorder look like? Um, but the second piece of it really, how prevalent is it? Because I think people might be surprised. And can I just jump in? And I know we have to hold on to those two things, but just my, my personal um, interaction with a young person was that she was slow, like uh, through, through talking about college admissions, suddenly she was slowly talking about stress that led to her relationship to food. And I didn't know where I was going with this, but I wanted her to reflect more. And the more that she was reflecting upon her issues with food and eating, in my mind, I was panicking. I was like, oh my gosh, I think, I think this might be perhaps a journey towards an eating disorder, or maybe she's had one. And I didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. um, and I empathize with, with parents who may have, you know, children who, or, or family members who may be communicating some things, dropping hints that we may not be identifying. And so Hillary's two points are just so important because that's why I reached out and felt like I need help. I need training. I need to be at least more aware as an educator and as a parent. So please share with us those two points if you remember what they are. Yeah, absolutely. I think I do. And I think I'm going to start with the second one just to set the stage. So we know that there are about 30 million Americans who will have an eating disorder in their lifetime. So it turns out to be percentages are sometimes easier. Uh, it's about 6% of uh, American um, females in the US, about 3% of males in the US. And I should say we have lousy gender research in eating disorders, like we just have these two categories in the research we have so far. So we need to get better at that and get a much uh, more comprehensive view of gender. But you have about 6% of adult females, 3% of adult males. When you look at adolescents, the numbers are a little higher. So about 8% of adolescent females, 4% of adolescent males. So a lot of people. So 30 million people likely struggling with eating disorder in their lifetime. And that doesn't take into account the millions more who may be just like that person that you talked about. That's maybe you're, you're hearing like, mm, I don't know if this is eating disorder. Maybe it's just disordered eating, which is also a significant issue. And so we know that those eating disorder sort of 
30 million people with a diagnosis of an eating disorder or will have a diagnosable eating disorder are really kind of maybe just the tip of the iceberg. So I want to make sure to clarify that piece. Um, and then to your first question about what eating disorders look like, right, they look like so many things and they <laughs> usually don't look like something you'll see. And that's the fascinating part that when, when you ask somebody on the street, what do you know about eating disorders? I'll, usually they say, oh, I know about anorexia or you know, low weight, or, uh, but they have no idea that anorexia is one of the least common eating disorders and binge eating disorder is the most common eating disorder. And when somebody's struggling with binge eating disorder, you may have no idea because it doesn't, it doesn't show up in a, an emaciated body like the way anorexia might although not always. And so we have this idea that like, oh, I'll know if somebody has an eating disorder, but, but you very likely will not know by looking at them. So binge eating disorder is the most common. Then the, the other category, which is other specified feeding and eating disorder, um, cleverly named OSFED, if you use the, the initialism. Uh, and that is basically, I always explain it as like, it's basically almost uh, meets another diagnostic criteria, but not quite. So it's a bit of a, a, a mixture in that group, uh, which is reflective of people, right? People have, have sometimes not this exact type of thing. So other is the second most common, and then you get bulimia and, and then anorexia. So the, the eating disorder we think we recognize the most easily, we think we see the most often is actually the least common eating disorder, and the others are more common. So you might never know by looking at somebody. You would know more around some of the other points that you were, you were alluding to earlier about what happens when people start to get obsessed with their food or their weight or their body or their relationship with self? What happens when people start to isolate? What happens when people get overly impacted by uh, environmental messaging or life experience? And then with what we've increasingly come to know over the last 10 years or so, what happens when our predisposing genetics connect with our neurobiology, connect with our experience, and some people end up with an eating disorder? So, and as I'm listening to you too, uh, you know, even generally something that we come across, it, I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about all of these conversations we've had, the, the rape conversation that we had in the, the child, um, uh, or not um, the sexual abuse and all of that, we were the reporting. And so because of the reporting, it was the tip of the iceberg. And here we're sitting again in the midst of this tip of the iceberg sort of uh, situation, which my heart right now is just, I, I, to describe it just goes out and, and hurts for people who are probably living oftentimes in shame um, and with guilt and feeling very anxious because there are these things that they are trying to control, but they don't control all at the same time. Um, and I feel like even on a, on a, a really a lower level, just the idea that we have sometimes of when food becomes your celebration and your comfort and your best friend and your all of this, not just your fuel. There's there's a whole mess of head games right in there as well. Uh, so this is this is multi-layered and it must be fascinating for you, but it must be very difficult as well. Do you have some some tips, some things that you can sort of give to us and to our listeners to help us begin to make some sense of, of how we can in, um, try to create maybe some positive change or views in our life when it comes to our relationship with food. 
Absolutely. I would, I would start by saying, um, if you were, you know, like we were talking about before with COVID and we're noticing more people seeming to, to be struggling with their weight or their body or their self-image or their relationship with food. If you have a loved one that you're worried about might be experiencing an eating disorder, the first thing I would say is, is call somebody. Get, call a, a, an eating disorder program like the EMILY program, call an eating disorder specialist if there's one in your community. Because if you think somebody might be struggling with an eating disorder, you're probably not wrong. And we know that not everybody who has difficulty in the relationship with food uh, will have an eating disorder, but at the same time, eating disorders have the second highest mortality rate of any mental health diagnosis, right behind opioid use disorder. So it's not an illness to, to kind of wait it out or assume maybe it's a trend it'll pass or it's a phase that somebody will grow out of that. If you're particularly, if you're a parent and you're worried about a child in your life, get some professional help because they might not have an eating disorder, but you also really don't want to miss it. So that's the first thing I would say that if you're concerned about somebody, absolutely do something. We're seeing more and more people calling and reaching out during the pandemic. I think that's a connection of, you know, people feeling isolated. Of course we do. We're, we're living in an isolated world, increased anxiety. Of course we have increased anxiety because we're living in a pandemic. And so we have this urgency around making sure that people get care early because when people are reaching out, they're actually more ill, even more ill than they used to be pre-pandemic when they'd call. So we have a lot of passion about that. If you're worried about somebody, get some help. Uh, if you're sort of feeling like, well, maybe it's not an eating disorder, but I just, I'm starting to feel like I'm trying to manage my emotions with food, or I can see that in one of my loved ones. But I think it's a really important uh, to think about some things that probably all have their roots in mindfulness. The first one I often think about is, can you ground yourself or help somebody else to ground themselves? Like ground yourself in your body and the space that you fill in your body without having your body have to be something else that, you know, the messaging on social media during COVID has been so, you know, intense around what we should look like and what we worry about. And, and our social media platforms have given us a new place to, to worry together about our weight and our appearance in a new way. Um, I don't know that we needed another new way, but here we have one. And so I think helping people to step back and ground themselves in, like, there's only one us, there's only one you, and right this minute, you have the opportunity to fully inhabit you and be in that place, in that space, in that body. Well, um, and I just so, wanted to, if I could just interject really quick, because I, you know, that mindfulness and that sense of presence is something Hillary and I really anchor Decided Heart conversations on. And uh, one of the responses to this young person who was slowly kind of revealing these, these issues was, parents, because there's so much fear, was a threat. So basically, the young person was reporting to me like, oh, yeah, yeah, well, my mom said if I don't eat more, she's going to take something away from something I enjoy. And um, of course, that made, me, that made me hurt so bad because that threat automatically tells her that something's wrong and that something is going to be taken away. And I know the parent is doing the best she can because she loves her daughter, but it's completely fear-based. Um, so I just really want to settle and be present with the mindfulness of taking that breath and listening. And then what you just said, reach out, reach and don't re react, reach out to someone who may be able to help you respond in a more healthy way. So absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think sometimes in our, you're absolutely right in our, in our fear, like we get worried about each other and in our fear, um, uh, 
we we worry and and maybe we label it as something else or we describe it as something else other than maybe what it is and so with the the control piece of feeling so out of control in the middle of this pandemic which is changing so much of our lives but even just generally um sometimes eating disorders get described as a way that people um are trying to control things and i i always like to shine a little light on that because um it's actually kind of a side effect of the illness that when people change the way they eat and um, experience that change because they're worried about their bodies or their, their health or whatever it is, that for some people, that change in our eating feels reassuring and soothing. And so it leads us to feel like we're managing something and feels more in control, but because our, our brain is sort of seeking soothing. And so it's not like somebody sets out to control something and changes their right. eating and then is like, yay, it's really a side effect. And so it's not that somebody's trying to get attention or control something. It's that they're, they're living their lives. And this thing that's happening is, is being sort of intersecting with what's happening in their brain. And so they're feeling a certain way. So I just think it's, it's a bit of a nuance, but I think it's important. No, it is. I appreciate you making that nuance. Cause in my head that that's, that's, but I, as you said it, I'm like, oh, I could see how someone could, you're just trying to control things and you're, and, and instead of like, okay, I'm feeling panicked. And so what, what, what can I feel better about? You know? Um, and, and it is, it is important because to Sonia's point as well, something that I think um, we forget is that when we shift into fear, as hard as it is to not shift into fear, but when we shift into fear, we are communicating messages to the people around us that they are broken or that we don't have the confidence they can get through it or that we don't respect their journey and their process. And we can get help and still not make them feel broken, I think. I don't know, tell me if I'm crazy. No, that makes total sense. And I think it's, it's really, I mean, I think it, it's totally in line with something else I was thinking about is that trust, like we, we need to trust that we know ourselves best. And that uh, if we really listen to our bodies, if we really, really take a deep breath and listen to our bodies, we have a ton of information right there at our fingertips, right there in our brains, right there in our bodies, everywhere that will tell us what we need. And if we can listen to that versus listening to outside messaging or, or really internalizing some like, if I just looked this way, or if I just ate this way, or if I just did this exercise or whatever, then things would be okay. And I would be okay. It's really embracing the concept that if we trust in ourselves, we can be okay, just like we are, and do the things that help us take good care of ourselves, because we know it feels good. And, and that trust is sometimes hard to extend to ourselves and sometimes hard to talk about with other people. But I think it's really important to figure out how is it that you know if you're trusting yourself and how do you ask for help in that process so that we can all you know, be in these trusting relationships together. Amazing. I know, that's so beautiful. I, I do, I, I love that because it's it, what's going around in my head is um, I feel like it took me personally until I was in my 40s, which I'm still in my 40s, so not that long ago, to view parts of my life with curiosity mm. instead of and be detached from from judging them. So that once I did that, I could then trust myself. I think when I didn't trust myself, it was because the emotion came in and I didn't know what to listen to. And so learning how to just be able to separate enough to be like, huh, this thing is going on. What do I think about this? What information is it giving me? I don't have to judge it. 
helped me be able to respond instead of react. But for goodness sakes, I would say I'm 47 now. It was probably 45 before I started seeing even, and I'm still not, I'm still getting there. I mean, I think we all get, you know, we're so, but at least it started showing up in my life instead of that, that like, ah, oh, what do I do? So that, I, I think that is beautiful. Glennon Doyle calls it our knowing, right? Yeah, absolutely. It trust is a, ourselves. Trust yourself. And I love your curiosity. Uh, you know, that, that concept is so important because if we're curious about, like we think all sorts of things that don't have to be real, right? That don't have to actually be true. We, we're just creative. Our brains are so creative. And so being curious about like, oh, that was an interesting thought. I wonder why I thought that. <laughs> or, or like, you know, welcome in feeling or thought. Have a seat. Let's chat. You know, I, I often will encourage my clients to do that, like, just welcome it on in and give it a nice place to sit and maybe a little cup of tea and ask some questions because it's, you know, being curious will be, will help you. And it doesn't mean it has to stay. That thought can move right on out after it's done with its cup of tea or when you're ready. Um, sort of like a river. It just can go by, but it, it might be there. That's okay. I just have to say, you know, I, I think one of the things for me and, and um, because I have been really in tuned with in tune with my physical presence and and really like pain doesn't happen to me it's a response to something and it's because I had an amazing coach as an athlete so as an athlete growing up and I was so lucky that I had coaches or mentors that would train me to say it's not happening to you you've your body's responding to this pain and I know with pain particularly with pain I, I really really dig down to the curiosity Oh, what's going on right there? And I, the clarity helps me cope. I get better coping mechanisms with that. So I feel like that's such a, a powerful tool for us to just kind of train ourselves to look inward um, rather than outward. So, yeah. Well, and along, so along that line, sort of leading to the third point, I love, so to being curious, and I love this idea, this image of like, come on in, have a seat, here's some tea. We really do need, in some cases, it's helpful to personify, you know, our, uh, our relationships that we have. It's hard to have a relationship with this inanimate, fuzzy, weird thing out there. And, and what about our relationship with food? I mean, how do you, you know, how do you start to look at that relationship and can it change and, and talk to us about that a little bit? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, uh, a lot of times we don't stop to realize we have a relationship with food that that we talk a lot about relationship with food at the Emily program that's sort of our main uh, you know sort of stock and trade of like what's your relationship with food and how is that going for you and how might it be different and how is it influencing your life and influencing your decisions and so I always encourage people to be open to the possibility that uh, a you have a relationship with food what else do we do three four five six seven times a day that we actually have to spend time making decisions about and spend time procuring and have barriers to procuring and, and preparing. And there's so much that goes into the decision about what we'll be able to eat or what we'll choose to eat or, or not have much choice in. And so eating is this enormous thing and we kind of don't think as much about it. So we all have a relationship with food. And if you have difficulty in your relationship with food, you usually know it. Like usually you're like, oh yeah, I can't, I can't eat that. I mean, it's sounds like 
things that people say, like, I can't eat that. Um, no, that's, you know, I feel out of control with that, or that's not okay for me. And I think knowing yourself is is the first step, right? Like, what are those difficulties? And how, how do you, how do they show up? Like, if you're over at a friend's house, someday when we can do that again, and somebody brings out a, a cake to celebrate something, what's your response? Is your response, oh, that's fun, or I don't really like cake, but whatever. Or is your response, oh my gosh, look at that cake. Look at, how, look, look at which piece am I gonna have? How does it look? How are people gonna think about me if I eat this cake? I wonder, oh, what did I eat today? that's a different response than, oh, that's fun, right? Mm -hmm. So we have these relationships with food and I think if we open ourselves up to explore them, that allows us to open ourselves up to the possibility they could be different. If when we explore them, we find out that there's some bumpiness in those relationships. And maybe we are connected to food in a way that we'd really like to instead be connected to people in that way. Mm -hmm. Or maybe we're connecting to food in, in lieu of something else and how can we, think through how that might be different and at least be neutral, if not a positive relationship with food. That's just so powerful to hear. It All is. Of it's just the, the wow moments. And I think it just, it leads to, to just the, um, which is the fourth tip is just kind of understanding myths. And maybe you've covered some of it, but how would you say in terms of understanding the myths out there? Yeah, I think there's so many myths, right? There are health and our appearance and our weight and our shape and our size. You can find so many myths that that support some of the beliefs we have. And I I always encourage people to think about like, what are you buying into and what's helpful to you? And and really, what are you being sold in a way? Like our, our, our you know, sort of social constructs sell us a lot of messages about food and weight and shape and appearance and all of that. Um, so what's valuable to you and, and what do you want to let go of? And what's really important to you? I usually will tell people like, you know, we, we have this belief that if we set out to change our eating or change our weight, it it'll depend on how well we do in that work. And, you know, our bodies, there's a range of bodies and sizes and shapes in our, in our world. And that's okay. There's not one size or shape that's right. And so if we're eating well, moving well, sleeping well, and coping well, those are my four things, eating, sleeping, moving, and coping. In whatever order you want to start thinking about them, your body will be what your body is going to be. Because if you're doing those four things, instead of sort of fueling your behaviors and your thoughts with a bunch of myths, then you're going to do the things you need to do. And if you're doing the things you need to do for you, then your body's going to be where it needs to be for you. And it might not match up to some myth, but so what? Really, at the end of the day, so what? Like if you're the only you and you're, you know, doing the things you need to do for you, that's awesome. That's what we want people to be doing. Not relying on like, oh, I fell short because, you know, your body's just not meant for that. That's okay. We're not meant to be the same person. We're supposed to have variety and that's, that's the beauty of things. I, you know, I love that so much because it's, it's funny how, um, again, this relationship with food that we have, and I see people getting very, very angry and touchy about certain things. And because I still do, I, I personally believe that you love your body by nourishing your body with what it needs. And, and so one of the things that I didn't realize until later in life was there are foods I can eat that give me more energy. And that allows me to go out and accomplish more things and be more things and, and be who I am. And there's food that I have that keeps me in a fog. 
And so learning to love your body, not expect a shape, but paying attention to what does actually make you feel good. And then what afterwards leaves you feeling the, you know, all of those types of things. Again, so many layers to it. And I, I think that we get people who are sometimes, um, you know, it shouldn't matter what I eat, blah, 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 blah. So you're on one extreme. And then you have, you know, I'm going to control everything I eat. And I think there's a happy medium of, wow, like for me, I have, I, I, weird things happen to my body with both dairy and gluten, right? And so I can eat that and keep on like, whatever, but I get foggy. I don't feel good. I break out, like all of that happens. And so it's, that is a choice to love my body, to make, to be more plant-based with things that I do, right? Um, but I think, again, it goes back to that curiosity and it goes back to like, how do I feel when I eat the entire cake? Well, I don't feel very good <laughs> when I eat the entire cake, but when I have one piece with my family, it's awesome. I don't know. Am I, am I making sense or am I crazy town? No, totally. I think that's, I mean, I, I think you're totally right. I, I, you're completely right that some foods are like, we have this sort of all foods fit philosophy, but not all foods fit for all people. Like food is just food. Food is carbohydrate, protein, and fat and, you know, multivitamins and minerals and a bunch of other stuff. Right. But when you, the energy we get from food, carbohydrate, protein, fat, you can recombine those three macronutrients in a zillion different ways to get a bunch of different kinds of food. So some of those are going to work for some people. Some of them aren't going to work for some people. I found that a lot of times the foods that people think don't work for them, it's not even so much the food. It's the, it's the way that they're eating it and ah. the disconnected way they're eating it or the the approach they have to it that leads them to feel terrible when they eat it. I'm like, well, yeah, that makes some sense that you feel terrible when you eat it. That if you're eating, I don't know, chips, like you, you know, want some crunchy something at the end of the day and you grab a bag of chips and you go sit on the couch and you flip on the TV and you're watching TV and you're eating chips and you get to a while in and you feel kind of yucky and you're like, oh, the whole bag is gone. And I've been watching this really bad TV show for an hour and a half and you feel bad. You could decide that like chips are the enemy and you should never have a chip again. And maybe chips aren't something your body likes. And at the same time, there's so many more steps before you get to that decision. Like, right. uh, you weren't even really being able to attend to the fact you were eating while you're watching TV on the couch, reaching in a package, not eating at a place where there's actually a table and, and attention and your body knows what it's doing. So I always encourage people to like way back up. Yeah. <laughs> like let's see what's actually happening so you can make an informed decision with what you want to eat. Because you wouldn't just decide like, oh, I'm never going to do, I'm never going to go to that place again because the time I went there, it, I didn't have a very good time. You'd probably mm -hmm. be like, oh, I wonder why I didn't have a very good time. Oh yeah, because it was super crowded and it was super busy and I, didn't, I don't like crowds and, and it was, I was tired and, and it was really loud. So maybe if you go again, you would go when it's less busy, you'd bring earplugs, you'd you know, do it, go to less traveled parts of wherever you were. You might not just write off the whole thing. So I encourage people to do that with eating too, like ask a lot more questions before oh, you make sure. big decisions. Yeah, I mean, this leads to such a great lead to the challenge. But before we even, sure. before we do the challenge to our, our listeners, just kind of um, summarizing the four tips, 
and that are, has been so useful. So number one is to really ground ourselves, ground ourselves in our own body, the space that we feel, you know, really be in tuned with what our body needs and what it's feeling, invite them for tea and coffee and have a conversation. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to keep that forever. But um, number two is to really trust ourselves to really listen. This is the tea conversation and what is right for us. Not what we have to be right towards or what other people are saying, but what is really right for us. Listen to our bodies. Um, number three is um, what is our relationship with food? <laughs> Define it. Because honestly, it's like I really haven't been intentful about what is my relationship with food. So for us to uncover that, to define it, um, to be still with it, um, whether it's negative or positive, but I think asking those questions are so important. And then finally, the myths that we might have. So whether it's assessing the myths out there or what we believe in, challenge if that is a myth, where is it coming from? So all of those four tips is what I got. Did I miss anything? No, that's, that's great. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So then it kind of leads for, to our challenge. What is the challenge for our listeners today? I would say the challenge is the next time you eat, whenever that is, pause before you do it. And ask yourself some questions or runs through some of these exact principles we talked about, like just pause. Are you going to sit down at a table with, you know, a bunch of things going on or will be less distracted? Is it going to be a fairly pleasant experience? Is it not? Will you be using silverware? <laughs> I find that's an interesting piece that people forget. Will you be using dishes? Will you be taking the bag or will you put some of the food from the bag into a bowl? and then eat it out of a bowl with a spoon or with a whatever implement is makes sense. Uh, will you do that? But then also, will you show up? Will you bring yourself? So will you bring yourself to the table with the attention on what you're doing? And if you attend to the, the place and the space and the experience of eating, I think you'll find it's an entirely different experience. So pause, take a deep breath, Ask yourself some questions about what do I want? How am I gonna have that? Is it going to be something I'm interested in or something I have to have? Sit, sitting is a huge thing we don't do when we're eating. We, unless we're like driving or we're zipping around, but sit at a table with space and silverware. And then as you start eating, you know, once you've done all that work, which is a lot more work than people typically do before they start eating. But once you sort of set a place for yourself, then pause again and ask yourself, how am I experiencing this? Do I like this food? Is it good? Is it not good? Am I enjoying it? Am I not enjoying it? And take some time to, while you're eating it, to actually notice what you're doing. And most people find when they do that, when they pause and they set a place at the table, they really kind of settle themselves into the activity of eating and they ask themselves questions as they're eating, they tend to find out that they're done eating before they usually would be. They get more satisfied more quickly. They don't eat things they don't like unless there's some reason that they, that's what they have to eat and they need their nutrition and they're going to eat it. But they at least know that they're not enjoying it. People's relationship with food right there at the table changes when we're actually paying attention to it. So it's really the simple concept of when you're eating, eat and notice you're doing it. I love that. So our decided heart challenge for this week is to pay attention, be mindful while you're eating. We'll write in what that means as you do it. And then I would also say to our listeners out there, if you know someone or if you are someone who needs help, 
do pick up the phone and call the EMILY program or a similar program in your area and just start asking the questions, be curious. It doesn't have to mean that you're signing up to do it. It doesn't have to mean, but find out the answers so that you start to get the information you need to make the next best decision in your life. Um, and with that, Jillian, thank you so much. We are incredibly grateful that you spent this time with us. And I think it's so important, again, as mothers of daughters um, and boys too, but I mean, boys have those, those feelings too. So I don't want to, to negate that, but the messaging is so much more towards women, I think, um, in, our, in our culture. It really, but again, not to, I mean, all the muscles and the things and the whatever for the guys as well. So it, it's all important we can as parents start to bring that mindfulness to our kids as well. We can start to remind them and engage them in relationships with food that are, that are positive. So thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you so yeah, much for inviting me. I, I feel truly grateful. And just within 30 minutes of our conversation, I'm just the um, awareness for me. And I just want to say how I appreciate your truthfulness, the advocacy for you personally and for the EMILY program. I was one of those desperate people that had to say, I don't know. I don't know. I need to reach out. And I'm so, so thankful I found you guys. Yeah. And anyone out there, start with the, I mean, I'm offering the EMILY program because you guys offer such comprehensive information and resources. Um, so thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. We'll see all of our listeners and our viewers next time, next week for another great conversation.